to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, nobody. Uh, if we're getting the, the chance that we have to watch like an adult TV show, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, um, this show has really gripped me lately. It's a show called Industry. Industry? No, I don't know this. On HBO. <clears throat> it's in its second season. Uh, it's about these, uh, I, got, I call them kids, but they're adults uh, who've... The first season was about them interning at a uh, investment bank in London, and uh, the second season is they've all gotten jobs now at the bank. But it's cutthroat, and it, it's very—I don't know. I think it would, wouldn't be unfair to call it sadistic in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, very high drama, high intrigue show. Uh, I don't know. What, what are you watching now? Oh man, uh, I, I've, I've been watching a lot of old stuff. I'm like trying to catch up. I, I have like what used to be referred to as like TiVo anxiety, where it's like you have like so many, such a backlog of shows that is just, I got to give up on a lot of things um, is like someone like recommend a show. And like, I used to be like, Oh yeah. Like I'll put that on my list. Like now I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to watch that. It doesn't matter industry. Yeah. That's great. I'm glad that you enjoy that show a whole lot, but there's no way that I can fit it into my repertoire. Uh, I can barely fit it into mine, but <laughs> you know, it's a show I want to watch. Between like all the children's TV that's already on, all the children's TV and work and writing articles and doing silly podcasts with <laughs> you know co-hosts and all this kind of stuff. I'll tell you what uh, I was watching today. Uh, me and my mom were uh, at her place uh, and put on like Science Channel, and it's called Aerial America, and it's like helicopter just flies around the u.s going to different landmarks and they have a, a video camera on the front and i don't know it's, it's super low budget they just videotape buildings and shit you know so this is the like, thing i love about you guys you're always like watching something that's interesting that i never <laughs> would have watched myself i i can see it's a great napping show right like, it's a great yeah. show to take a nap to but like, like there's like voiceovers and all this stuff and they, they they flew over uh, San Francisco, and uh, you're familiar with the Prudential Tower. It's like a, like a mm-hmm. triangle. Yeah, it's one of the iconic buildings in San Francisco. Yeah, skyline. exactly. I mean, like they already have like the Golden Gate Bridge, which I mean that's pretty sweet and everything, but I mean, it's like pyramid building in this like mm-hmm. earthquake zone. But I didn't. I haven't been to San Francisco in years. I really ought to get back eventually. But they have uh, the Salesforce Tower, and it's like thirty percent taller than the prudential tower it's absolutely massive uh once again like in this earthquake zone and i was thinking i, I don't know anything about salesforce how they make their money why they got a tower so big do they have that many people what's going on i don't i mean i'm assuming they have that many people if they're in the office or not i, I don't know but uh i will say i think i actually heard that that building might be sinking into the ground <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i, I don't but that I may be just making that up. Um, well, a substantial part of San Francisco was reclaimed from the bay. So, like, they, you know, threw in like trash and rubble and dirt and essentially what said. So, are you saying that San Francisco was essentially a landfill at one point? <laughs> I think part of it anyway, right? Okay. I didn't know that. Uh, I, I know that if, like, oh, shoot, this is a long time ago, flying into the airport, you can see where they were like trying to reclaim land over there. And of course, parts of uh, New York City as well. Where I mean, yeah. land just is so valuable in these places. It, it makes me wonder, like, how the pandemic has hit 
San Francisco and are people still living there or people moving away to Montana or well I think Dallas? yeah I, mean, I think there's like a lot of cities have seen out migration and some cities have even seen in migration but I remember reading this article probably a few months ago that talked about like all the biggest metros in the United States and <clears throat> what percentage of their workforces were back in the office versus out of the office and like you know, Dallas and Austin and Houston were at like the top of the list, as you might <laughs> Good expect. Good Texas, yeah. And then, uh, um, you know, places like San Francisco, Seattle, they were at kind of like the bottom of the list. And so it's kind of a ghost town. I've actually been out there twice since the pandemic. And yeah, it's it's kind of sparse. And I'd heard Manhattan was like that at one point, but I actually went there two months ago. And man, Manhattan's popping again. So I think people are back, or at least they're starting to come back in, in that city. Yeah, I don't think Texas really... <clears throat> I don't, I don't. I don't think they really. Uh, I don't think the pandemic ever fully hit here. Uh, it, it hit. It was just. It was a. It was a short flight. It was a short <laughs> layover um, compared to a lot of places. Uh, Texas. Uh, they like their independence. You know? Seattle was. Seattle was freaked out. Seattle was freaked out. Like it was. It was a ghost town. Uh, but you're starting to see it come back. It's. It's really, really encouraging that you know uh, people are getting back to quote unquote normal. However, I think we're all kind of like changed too through yeah, this process. I think so too. Well, I mean, I thought I thought you were saying they're getting panicked over the stuff that panics me about Seattle. You know, Mount Rainier you know, exploding. <laughs> it's a volcano. <clears throat> it's a volcano, and the great earthquake that's going to happen eventually, where Seattle's going to fall into the ocean. These are the things <laughs> that I worry about. You know, I know that they had a. Uh, <clears throat> we're both like coughing. This is not good. Uh, I know they had an earthquake like in twenty years ago, like essentially like knock the facade off buildings but i think they're also like really due yeah due for a big one as well when even mount st helens is not that far from there too right yeah that top, topped off in the 80s mm-hmm. i think that's gonna be dormant for a while that's closer to uh portland actually oh is it you ever been to portland i haven't i've never been to portland Portland's a cool cool city it's it's hard to get to uh not a whole lot of direct flights yeah well, speaking speaking of you know tv shows portlandia <laughs> that's an oldie but a goodie that i used to really like oh man is there a uh people analytics spin to portlandia i don't know <laughs> <laughs> maybe the you know the feminist bookstore you know or something like i don't know uh, I'm, I'm struggling to find the relationship that said it's a very funny show you know what i got for you today though what do you have for me today? I got for you a. I found this is. I, I've been sitting on this for a while, and I just figured we could like bring it up. I I found this list on Twitter. It's it's fantastic. It's uh forty. I don't know, like psychological heuristics or. I'd say they're like theories. So like theories, theories phenomena. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. That that uh, emergent properties. Emergent properties. Let's dress it up a little bit. It. But there, there's 40 of them. I won't go through all 40, but let's kind of run some of these by you and just kind of like get your take. If there's like sort of a, a people next focus or like, I don't know, you find it interesting. I want to know your take too, because I want to know why, like of the 40, you chose a few of them, why you chose which ones you chose. Boy, there is like a selectivity bias, like, because there's like some <laughs> interesting ones that uh, I was like, eh. Yeah. But uh, have you heard of uh, Munger's Iron Prescription? I have not heard of Munger's so, Iron Prescription. So Munger's Iron Prescription says, if you can't state the opposing view of an issue, at least as well as the people supporting it, then you're not entitled to your own view. Oh, that, that's essentially steelmaning. Like what we talked, I think we talked about that yeah, in the last Colin Scott podcast where 
you have to be able to state the other side. I think there's like a famous quote. Um, I can't remember who said it, but it was like, if you don't know the other side's argument as well as you know your own, you know little of that. Um, so yeah, it might have been Munger. <laughs> it might have been, yeah, it's, it's Munger who said it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think there's also like the aspect of like just having an opinion. Like you need to be aware of like what you're talking about. Well, what's the relationship? to that with what we talk about on here or just people in Alex in general. Uh and it's okay if there is none. Yeah, I don't know. Uh we'll figure it out later. <laughs> we got four of these to go through, man. We can't be okay. bogging down on all of them. <laughs> Number two. Well it's like <laughs> any bra- any brainstorming session. You talk about the first idea for like three fourths <laughs> of the time and then you try to squeeze in all the rest of the ideas in like the last five minutes. Uh, number two, Popper's falsibility principle. For a theory to be considered scientific, it must be possible to disprove or refute it. As such, for each of your beliefs, you should have a clear idea of what persuade you that you're wrong. Otherwise, your belief is immune to reason. Yeah. And, I mean, this is, you know, this is the core of science, you know, and there's a lot of Popperian people out there. But I, I really kind of, in a practical sense for people analytics, I always try to break down problems into is this knowable or is this unknowable? Mm-hmm. And if it's knowable, that means that we can use science to falsify or unfalsify it and get to the truth. And so that's what I'm always looking for when it comes to answering problems. Yeah, I, I don't see it so much like on the job, but uh, just dealing with folks, sometimes they'll like start moving the goalpost as well. Like you'll provide some evidence and like they're like, well, yeah, but I mean, like that's not really what I was talking about. It's like at some point, like, what what are we talking about? Well, I think what that's a different thing. That's usually that's something called motivated reasoning, right? So you want to see the conclusion you're looking for, and therefore you're going to keep torturing either <laughs> the data or the person providing the data until they give you the conclusion you were wanting. What about the? Uh, I'm going to butcher this. Gerwinder's theory of bespoke bullshit. You ever heard of this? Nope. Uh, many don't have an opinion until they're asked for it. At which point. They cobble together a viewpoint from uh, whim and half-remembered hearsay before deciding that this two-minute-old makeshift opinion will be the new hill that they die on. Scott, why you put me on blast, man? <laughs> I feel like that's are you that's Gerwinder? Like, that's, I feel like that's me in a nutshell. Sorry, <laughs> I, I guess I just feel like the need to apologize now for the, like the audience. For well, this I podcast. think I'm doing this to you right now. It's like I'm presenting you with you this this thing, and like you got like come up with like an opinion off the top of your head, and I'm gonna like nail you to the wall for it. Yeah, and maybe for future episodes, I'll do some research before we talk about some of these things. <laughs> this is unfair. This is totally unfair. Like, I'm, I'm bringing this to you just uh, uh, out of the blue. I mean, but that's like all Twitter is. is that's true. Bringing you shit out of the blue. Like, this is the Hey, new... here's your newest problem. Yeah. Thanks, Twitter. This is what we all got to be uh, enraged about. Speaking of, uh, digital detox. Uh, you can't develop a perspective while endlessly consuming information. So periodically disconnect from glowing screens, dwell a while in the darkness, and there you'll see what you were blind to. Boy, I, I really experienced this when I got away and went to Europe where my phone didn't work. I, I couldn't log on to social media, Twitter, anything. And after two weeks, it turns out I didn't care about any of that shit at all. It wasn't. Yeah. I, I didn't care. You know, I, I, I'm pretty good on the social media front other than LinkedIn, but the thing I, I really do struggle with the the phone and just having it around, like, and I've even seen research that shows that there's like a difference between 
if you have your phone in your pocket versus in another room versus on the table face up and on the table face down in terms of your ability to focus and be productive. It's wild. So, yeah, it's like, and I'm fully captured by it, but I wish I wasn't. There's lots of uh, interesting details about the phone. Like uh, if you have your phone on the table, even upside down, like at a, while having dinner with someone else, they'll perceive you as less interested in yep. the conversation. And it's the, the phone, boy, it has the same effect on a two-year-old as it does like an 82-year-old. Like people are just zoned in on the phone. Well, I mean, it's the reinforcement learning algorithms oh, yeah. that are taken to get your attention. And by the way, for the listeners on the podcast, Scott has his phone up in front of him right now. <laughs> so I, I am actively avoiding Cole right you know now. Why? <laughs> uh, ever heard of the Babel hypothesis? Uh, according to multiple studies, what best predicts whether someone becomes a leader? Is it their experience, their IQ? No, it's the amount of time they spend talking. Doesn't matter what they say, just how much they say. We suck at picking leaders. See, I was thinking you said battle, not babble. Babble. Okay. I, I didn't. I didn't. I was like I the battle hypothesis. We're going to war, and war is how you select leaders. <laughs> it's actually if you talk too much, which <laughs> I probably do. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I remember learning about the babble effect in graduate school. I think it's one of the like I, I'm actually really intrigued by the concept of emergent leadership. But the Babel effect is one of the key criticisms of emergent leadership, because if you do like if you're trying to like select high potentials, some things yeah. they'll, they'll use like a leaderless group discussion. Well, who up who ends up being the leader, like an emergent leader in this context in that discussion is usually the person who's suffering from the Babel effect. So it is one of the key criticisms. But I, I, I am intrigued by emergent leadership, leadership, they, uh, leadership research. They uh, wind up being the. uh, uh front man essentially for the group and by default the leader at that point yeah. uh procrastivity ever heard of this uh we often avoid work by doing something else that feels productive so we don't feel guilty for example yeah for example endlessly researching productivity hacks instead of actually being productive yeah as a a leader and a manager i've definitely <laughs> seen this of members of my team like why don't you actually do the things that you're supposed to be doing instead of coming up with ways of researching the <laughs> oh, things yeah. that you should be doing. But, but yeah, I think about this in terms of, of writing, cause I I'm starting to do more and more writing and I've really struggled with that. You know, when you're starting with just a blank page in front of you, how do you get around that? And I found in graduate school, this kind of hack that really helped me, which is I always start with the references section. So I put their like five pages of references into the article before I even start writing it. And it's like, oh, I've already written five pages. So you've really kind of broken the seal already. So what, like you, you already have your like your short citations and you'll just like drop them into the document and like kind of organize them. That's, that's the way I would think about it. Well, it's kind of the opposite of what best practices would say. Best practices would say put together an outline and then yeah, you no know, one got time for that. populate the outline with, <laughs> with references and then create you know, a references section, presumably later. But I just start with the references and then put the get together the outline after that. I, I use uh, what I call like the 24-6 method where like I have a timer on my computer set up for 24 minutes and I am zoned in as much as I can on a specific task. Uh, don't check email, don't check messages. And once that 24 minutes is up, you can go to the restroom, go check email, do whatever you want to do. But well, this is a, a crucial point. I'm actually really curious what you think about this. A lot of the applications you have, like whether it be email or Slack or whatever, 
little notifications pop up on your screen yeah. when you get something new. Do, does that violate the 24 minute rule? And do, is that distracting? Because I find it incredibly distracting. It can be wildly distracting. I will say that uh, I, I switched over to uh, Mac and it has, you know, the same functionality that your iPhone does where you can do uh, what do not disturb. And you set it for 30 minutes, an hour. Super helpful for this sort of application. Because just like I mentioned a while ago with the phone, the computer's like there to get your attention too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Solomon's paradox we're better at solving other people's problems than our own because detachment yields objectivity but Cross et al 2014 found that viewing oneself in the third person yields the same detachment so we're trying to help yourself imagine you're helping a friend interesting I, I'm pretty good at helping other people I'm pretty horrible at helping myself and so maybe I need to get better at thinking about things in the third <clears> person well, I mean, like, don't worry, man. I can point out all your flaws. I, I'll just tell you what they are. <laughs> well, thank you, Scott. You want to do it publicly? Can we have a public flogging today? <laughs> uh, oh, man, I'm going to butcher this one. Zyker Ze- Ze- Nick effect. Apologies what's, what's, to what's that? Dr. Zyker Nick. Uh, our brains are goal-focused, so we have better recall of unfinished tasks than finished ones. Exploit this by taking your breaks halfway through your task if you write uh, end your day mid-sentence so that when you return, it'll be easier to get rolling again. Hmm. So this is kind of like that, the 24 minute method that I use. So like I'm going for 24 straight minutes as that timer hits, I'm done. Doesn't matter what, just done. Yeah, this one doesn't resonate as much with me. I don't, I don't know why, why it is, but I, um, maybe it, I'm just cut from a different cloth or something. It seems kind of impossible in practice to yeah. really like finish a sentence unfinished you know or just say zyberneck or however you say that <laughs> we can't pronounce his name doesn't even really oh okay uh kurtosis risk here's a nice stats term for you uh more people are killed by bees than terrorists so why do we spend so much uh it doesn't have a uh adjective a verb here uh so much whatever fighting Time. terrorism uh the answer is that death rates do not equal risk the most a bee can do is kill a person. The most a terrorist can do is nuke a city. Current rates ignore future potential. Oh, interesting. Um, that's a different spin on it than where I thought you were going with it. I thought it was going to be like, maybe we should be more scared of bees. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, like from a people and perspective, like maybe you could think about it as far as like, oh, like, oh, we have a, like a small increase in our turnover rate whatever we don't need those people anyway they're gone they didn't fit our culture oh wait these people could like go tell their friends not to apply to the company or you know go whatever yeah i've heard it described as like the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy like a bee has a bunch of kinetic energy and just stinging you and now you're i guess presumably having a reaction and passing away but like you know a terrorist (laughs) group has a bunch of potential energy that maybe they haven't actually brought to bear yet and therefore, what could happen is actually worse than may be what has happened. There's also like a, a stitch in time effect. Like if we could go back and somehow thwart the, I don't know, 9-11 terrorists before they, you know, flew planes into the tower. We would never know that that was even a thing. Well, let's get into really like <laughs> raked over areas. If you could go back in time <laughs> and change one event in history, Scott, what would it be? <laughs> uh, 
Man, I, I would go back uh, to the 2003 Texas versus OU game and, <laughs> and stop evil Roy Williams from uh, hitting. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't remember his name. Bill, uh, Chris Sims's hand and scoring a touchdown there in the end zone. That's a very specific example, Scott. <laughs> I think and, about it. Every and what, day. what would the cascading impacts of, <laughs> on society be? Who knows? Who knows? I think we'd all be in utopia right now, actually. I, I don't think that would be the case. Uh, here's, here's one that kind of relates to people uh, more directly. Uh, Howard Hughes syndrome. Everyone always lies to the powerful, to curry favor, to avoid punishment. Hearing nothing but flattery causes the most powerful people to develop the most distorted views of reality. And their vast influence mean we all pay the price. Interesting. And this is kind of, we were talking about this before the podcast, like how some famous people just go crazy. And I think Howard Hughes is, I mean, he's pretty dated at this point. I think a lot of people actually don't even know who he is anymore, but he was like the Elon Musk of the 1920s or something like that. And uh, I think he just went absolutely nutso and like lived in a cabin all by himself or something, but he was a famous inventor at the time. But yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think I mean, I, I, my personal opinion is like people who get too famous, I actually think it's really cruel to them because they never get to interact with a normal human being. And uh, I think that drives everyone crazy from like a, a people I like spend uh, kind of see this in organizations sometimes where <clears throat> people will like not doctor, but definitely like mm, way like say survey data in their balance. So like there's no problems. There's no problem in our group. We're fine. Everyone's scoring a four or five on all these measures. Look at this. We, we're perfectly fine. Meanwhile, like the whole uh, floorboard's rotten out underneath them, but the leadership never hears this information. Yeah, problems for, for thee, but not for me. Kind yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, permission structure. People don't want to change their mind for fear of looking stupid, so give them a way to change without looking stupid. Example, as opposed to saying... Uh, uh, simply telling someone that they're wrong, tell them, I used to think the way you did before I had this information and changed my mind. Oh, this is my whole door number three philosophy. And this Uh-oh. comes up a lot in people analytics, which is, you know, door number one is the person who's asking gets what they want. Kind of back to that motivated reasoning point from earlier. Yeah. Door number two is I get what I want. I'm always searching for door number three, which is some kind of creative solution where we both get what we want. Right. I think uh, I learned that from a book. It was called The Opposable Mind. I'm trying to, I don't remember who wrote it, but it's a really good book about how to think differently and, and influence other people. Whenever I'm dealing with someone that's like somewhat problematic, or, you know, you kind of get a picture of how someone's going to react just uh, through time and, you know, your repeated interactions. I'll usually say something to the effect of like, this is how I would do it and just kind of leave it at that. If they want to do it your way, then they'll do it. If they want to do it their own way, they'll do it. But at least you, Still suggested it. I'm not saying that that's the best influence strategy, but it is funny. I mean, fight, pick your battles. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Maslow's hammer. People disproportionately rely on what they understand to explain what they don't. So be aware of intellectual who just published a new book, Cole, as they'll try to apply this book's ideas to everything. It's like something, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, I haven't published a book yet, thank God. <laughs> well, when you do, we can... Uh, uh... Yeah, I feel like that's like... <laughs> Not to get too like inside baseball here, but you have, like a lot of times when people publish a book, they're 
have to go and talk to a bunch of people about the book. Yeah. And so I think that's probably why it comes up because you have to like explain like why your book is relevant. And so they're like, well, hey, this thing happened in the news. How does your book help with that thing? And you're like, well, I guess it solves everything. I mean, like I, I fall into this trap too. Like I do a bunch of network analysis and like I'm always kind of like angling in that sort of direction. Like, okay, this is where like network approach might lend a hand. Well, uh, let's bring up a topic that's in the news then uh, and see if network analysis <laughs> helps with it, uh, Scott. So have you heard about this Gravity Payment CEO guy? No, who's this? So, and you know, I, I've seen his stuff because he's like one of these common people, kind of like the Simon Sinex of the world where people always share their posts on LinkedIn. And I guess he became famous for like paying all of his employees, I guess, like $70,000 a year. So nobody makes oh. more or less than anybody else. And he, I think I, I mean, saw this guy, yeah. To be honest, I think his picture, he kind of looks like Jesus a little bit, you know? So he's <laughs> a very self-referential type person. And he's like the savior of the Yeah, he really does man. kind of like a savior complex. And he's like, so many people have been talking bad about me, raised to pay, and all we saw was all these really positive benefits to the company. Well, it turns out the New York Times did an expose on this, this guy and uh He's been like sexually abusing women or something and using these LinkedIn posts to like lure women in. And I was like, you too can make $70,000 if you come to my couch in my office. Yeah. Like talk about horrendous, like horrible human being stuff. And like, you could, I don't know. I hate to say it this way, but like, I felt like this was coming. Like I was like, and this guy is too, like too good to be messianic in his way of going about doing things that, you know, something's got to be there. And it t- t- turns out that I guess there is something here. But to put you on the spot, Scott, how is organizational network analysis going to help solve this problem? How's it going to solve the problem? Man, I don't know. Because uh, it is an organization and um, presumably, you know, some there were some s- strong and weak ties between. Yeah, between I, I, I'll tell you where my mind like immediately went is uh, paying everybody like well above what the external market would pay and what does that do to the workforce and does it level off among employees so you would think that say the average uh uh, salary externally was fifty thousand dollars this guy's paying seventy thousand dollars you would think everyone in the organization is going to be super pumped about this but you know eventually someone's going to get a little bay raise maybe they're making like seventy five thousand. do people still have that ideation is like well i'm still making twenty thousand dollars more than i would externally are they gonna think like damn it steve's making five grand more than me well two points first of all that was like their whole pitch is that nobody ever got paid more than anybody else but second of all oh, what does that have to do with organizational network analysis? nothing nothing okay, i'm just saying being... that's where my mind immediately went well interesting enough uh yeah well but- so so one of the things that Scott and I've been thinking about, and I, w- I want you to comment on this, Scott, is like, we do this podcast, we're enjoying it, we have good conversations, we're kind of trying to bring some structure to it. And one of the things that, you know, I personally find interesting is like, what's the local LinkedIn gossip? And so the gravity payments guys, like my gossip for the week, you know, last <laughs> time we talked about, I think Malcolm Gladwell and all the shit he's been getting for stuff he said about remote work. What do you, what do you like? Reach out to us and tell us, do you like some of these segments? If there's something you like, you don't like, let us know. Or maybe you can be the new crying CEO and we can talk about you. Just got to let yeah, us know. Yeah, the crying CEO. I forgot. It. Yeah, that also happened. 
And man, that really went by the wayside quickly. So, yeah, we need more of these stories. We need more like wacky people in leadership positions doing wacky things. Not necessarily like, you know, uh, encouraging sexual harassment by any means. Please don't be doing that. No, no, we can't condone that. Well, I think about like, and I think, you know, we covered this last time where, where Scott's kind of the people analytics subject matter expert. And he so graciously called, I had a few people actually reach out to me about this. They said, uh, Cole's the, the people analytics hipster. I was like, ah, oh, that's not going to go away. Is it? Um, but <laughs> Scott, so Scott called me the people analytics hipster, but I'd like to think that I'm more of like on the strategic side of people analytics. So you are, you, you do think of like the big picture. You yeah. think of, uh, the implications for, uh, what specific decisions will take. Yeah. Well, so like one of the things that we're thinking about is every week we'll have like kind of a deep SME topic and we're even coming up, uh, going to have a segment. It's not even really a segment. We're going to have guests on, we're going to call it analyst hour. So we're going to bring in, and I, I don't think a lot of podcasts do this. I think it's a little bit different. And so Scott and I are you know, kind of willing to take risk here and try out new things and bring on a deep subject matter expert, uh, you know, kind of junior or senior analyst, individual contributor, people analytics person. Maybe we'll learn about some, go really deep on some analytics topics with them. But the challenge I, I want to put out there to the audience is if, if that, if you fit the bill for kind of that, that mold, you know, feel free to reach out to Scott and I and see if you're up for the challenge of being on analyst hour. We've got, we've got one coming up, but we may have some more in the future. I don't know, Scott, what do you think about that? Yeah. I, I think there's also a point that like, we don't know what we're doing. We are just trying to do this on the fly. And you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't tell by the super polished podcast we put together. Yeah. No, no, we're, we're, we're trying to have interesting conversations with interesting folks and just learn, learn about yeah. people analytics. I think this is, this is the magic of uh, people analytics or like even like creativity, uh, learning from not people doing the exact same thing that you're doing, but people doing like adjacent activities where you can borrow from those sort of things. And hopefully we can provide these experiences to anyone out there. Absolutely. Well, and so like one one of the things that we have like our <clears throat> kind of our SME, our science segment of the day, where kind of the the theoretical principles or biases or heuristics or whatever section we had a second ago, but the strategic section of the day or the hipster section of the day <laughs> hipster that I wanted to talk to you about, Scott, was um <clears throat> something we mentioned with Max. So uh, we actually right now when we're recording, we haven't released the podcast with Max, but uh, Blumberg, but we've already um, we've we talked to him yesterday. One of the things that came up is about a podcast is about the HR identity crisis. And I want to ask you a question. I want to get your per- opinion on this. Okay. Or why do you think HR exists? And then why do you think people analytics exists? Oh, man, this is a deep question. So, and I, I mean this so, somewhat from like a historical perspective, like what's the, like, when was the first, you know, HR? Fund? And I actually don't know the answer to this, yeah. but I think it's, it's good because one of the things that, that I really try to think about is like first principles thinking. So take something down to its bare elements and try to understand it there and then understand these differences. Because I think this is where the HR identity crisis comes up, but I wanted to kind of pose the question to you and see what you thought about it. Yeah. So like some of this is going to be just like kind of uh, scatter shooting and uh, uh, armchair sort of like historical analysis, but I would imagine HR probably formed in something like, Henry Ford's 
organization or something like this. But what, why does HR exist? Like, I, I would think about it in terms of, say, you're, we, we've brought this up before. Say you're starting your own company. Who's the first person you're going to hire? It's probably going to be a, a person that can either make something or someone that can sell something, right? And well, we'll get back to the people analytics thing here, but I think you're on to something. I want to dig into it for a second because this is a very common startup problem, which, and, and I'd love to get your perspective on it too, which is, when do you make your first HR hire? Is it exactly. employee 20, employee 200, employee 10,000? You know, when, when does HR come into existence and why? And why? I, I think the why is because all of the bullshit you got to deal with, like cutting paychecks and who knows if there's like some sort of like dispute on like, say, a factory floor or what, whatever you, you have your business doing. To the point where, like, he's like, I just can't handle it anymore. I need someone else to handle this sort of task for me. And that's when HR comes in. And you also have like the legal requirements that, you know, come in as well of like, you need to adhere to these sort of standards. Da, 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 da. That's where HR comes in, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Well, and so you, I think you've hit on two key points there. One is, and, and you, there's ways of getting around this at, at startups, like you can fully outsource your payroll and things yeah, like that. So you don't true. necessarily have to hire HR then. But the question really is, typically there's compliance and legal guidelines, because those things are different mm-hmm. for why HR, like if you're a, a company that has, I believe it's over 50 employees in the United States, you have to start filing some of your first like EO1 forms with the federal government. Well, typically HR is responsible for that. And so that's a compliance-based reason. Similarly, like you brought up, typically what happens is maybe you have a legal function and they say, hey, uh, since you know the gravity payments guy have sexual harassment as a thing coming up or sexual assault in the workplace, well, you need to have some kind of mitigation mechanism in place for you know making sure that these things don't happen, i.e. HR gets created to either serve in the litigate or in, in the legal mm-hmm. sense or the compliance sense to make sure these things happen. So, so why do you think I'm bringing this up? Why, why are you bringing this up? Like when it come in relation to like the, the identity crisis of HR. Yeah. You're probably bringing it up to, uh, kind of pose the question of like, who does HR serve? Does it serve the business or does it serve the employees as is often positioned with Max? We talked about the article about HR is not your friend. Yeah. Right. And I mentioned to him, I thought that there was kind of this identity crisis going on. I just couldn't get this conversation on my mind after it happened. I was really kind of processing like, why is this the case? Why it, and and like, why is there an identity crisis? And the reason I've come to is there's kind of like, there's three pro like there's three things that are tugging you in different directions. One is the historical basis that HR as a function was really created as a compliance and mm-hmm. legal driven function. So that's one thing tugging you in one direction. Another is what Max mentioned about shareholder value, right? So HR is there to serve at the behest of the executives and therefore they're not your friend because they're going to do whatever is in the company's best interest, but not necessarily in the employee's best interest. So that's thing tugging you in direction number two. And then there's this more recent phenomena, and I think you, I, and Max are all in this camp of HR, and and I'll get into people analytics in a second, but HR wanting to serve as a strategic advisory function, right? We all think that we play that, but really, if you look at our history and why we have this identity crisis is 
all these leaders who are actually, you know, making their first HR hire, they're saying, I made you to be a compliance hire. Why are you trying to come back to be me and be the strategic advisor? You know, kind of know your role. Like, who are you? <laughs> Get back. <clears throat> Get back to where you, your little closet there, HR. Yeah, I mean, puts baby that, in the that makes total sense based on like why you would hire HR in the first place, because you want them to run the business. And if you look at a lot of HR functions, it can be divided into, oh, you're handling uh, uh, compensation. You're over here handling uh, even like recruiting, all these sort of things that like are just run the business. Uh, what do they call it? like employee mitigation or whatever, whenever employee relations, relations, right? etc. But then you have like sort of like the people analytics function, which is that more strategic arm. It's really like bifurcated. So, the so then let's, let's, let's kind of turn the page yeah. on it and say, why then did people analytics come into existence? Why does it exist? What, what are your thoughts immediately? Well, so I immediately go to like, the, obviously there were exceptions to this. There were, you know, people analytics organizations. They didn't call it that, but like personnel departments and like the personnel U.S. Army. Psych and, or yeah. And like the U.S. Army and like, GE back in the 1980s probably had it. And, you know, like really large organizations had these things. But, you know, when it really came into its own is because it became this extension of the HR technology function when HRIS tools or HCM tools started collecting. Like there was a point in time where everything, every piece of data about an employee was literally on a sheet of paper and kept in a filing cabinet. <laughs> yeah. Right? That existed totally. for a long time. And then there were, they call it like the digital transformation or the first digital transformation was moving that paper filing cabinet into a online repository, usually in some kind of HRIS tool. Well, all of a sudden when those tools, you know, came to be somewhat proliferated amongst organizations, you know, all at, all at the same time, like, at all oh these different God, organizations. Oh my God, we got so much data. Well, it's not just so much data, it's that they're making this huge spend about these tools because these tools aren't cheap usually. Yeah, yeah. Now we better be getting some kind of ROI from these tools. Oh, yes. And the, the HR technology teams aren't the ones who are going to get you that ROI. And then you kind of couple that with the analytics revolution based on like Moneyball and, you know, competing on analytics was this really famous seminal article, I believe, by like Thomas Davenport that came out in like 2010 or something along those lines. And it became this huge fad. But I think it was the confluence of multiple factors where you had the technology that supported it. You had the data for the first time readily available. You had the business case because there was an ROI to be had. And then you had this kind of, uh, you know, the talking heads were saying, analytics is the future. Analytics is the future. Now people analytics exist. But that also puts people analytics at an identity crisis. But before I get into that, I want to get your perspective on it. Yeah. Um, boy, you covered a lot of ground right there. Um, it, it seems like a natural consequence of everything you just mentioned there. And prediction is the name of the game. You see applications in business, you know, in business in general, like predicting like who's going to uh, convert on a sale, et cetera. So it seems like a natural uh, extension to just Put this into HR as well, um, so it, it's no wonder that uh, it would go that way. I'm fucking rambling now. I don't have anything to say here. Well, here's the thing, and I think this is let's call it the original sin of why people analytics usually struggles. Like, I, there's been so many articles, and everybody, you know, every you know, people analytics talking head has their perspective on why you know people analytics needs to be more strategic or needs a seat at the table or HR needs a seat at yeah. the table. 
why do they keep having this problem over and over and over again? It's because going back to HR was created to be a compliance driven function. Why are you coming to me as an internal data science function and trying to convince me as a leader, you know, go baby, go sit in the corner. Yeah, and, and we're trying to say nobody puts baby in the corner. <laughs> you know, we're people analytics, we're a strategic function. And I think unless these organizations and they do exist who who from its infancy say people analytics is the future and I need this as an organizational leader, I need people analytics to help me augment my decision making, you're always pushing a boulder up a hill. And I, I don't think a lot of people have come to its logical conclusion as to why they're pushing that boulder up a hill. And I've been thinking a lot about it since that conversation with Max. How do you react to that? Uh, well, we, we can show through IO historical studies that ROI is gained by applying psychological principles and, you know, essentially applying uh, these. Yeah, but we know that. Do the leaders know that? Do they know that? And do we, do we like I, the royal we of, the whole people analytics field do does even the whole people analytics field know that because again i think max's point was yeah i think they're, they're like believers more than half of people analytics is just people creating reports and dashboards and saying they're doing people analytics and that's <laughs> you know they don't even know well, the value that it receives either. i mean th that's a good conversation we have with max as well is like is that even people analytics at that point is it creating a dashboard i mean i guess it is it's like data that's on what they people. call it you know, I wish they didn't call it that, but there's a lot of people that I think have co-opted the word analytics. So, um, so for me, people analytics is just substitute prediction, prediction on people to know the future is to have an advantage. And that's the true uh, goal of people analytics. That's what every business is looking for, that edge. And granted, a uh, people analytics IO function is a luxury. It's a luxury for organizations because if you go back to when you're starting the business, it's not going to be the third person you hire. It's yeah. not going to be the 40th person you hire. It's probably going to be, depending on the organization. Well, it's a luxury early, but I would say, and again, it kind of goes back to like, why does HR exist? Once you're of an employer of a certain size, I would say people analytics in comparison to the rest of the HR function becomes more important than almost anything else in HR because it's the it's almost the only function in HR that can show a tangible relationship to like revenue generation or to innovation or to sales or yeah, whatever it may be. Absolutely. Whereas most functions really can't show that direct relationship. And so maybe in the beginning, like in a startup, it's really difficult to show like, hey, maybe should we hire a salesperson or a people <laughs> analytics person? They're going to choose the salesperson every single time. You right? also get these like fun, like sort of like tongue in cheek sayings that come from the business. Like, oh, our, our people are the most valuable asset we have. It's like, really? You haven't always treated them like that. So, you know, in a lot of these organizations. I have, I have a funny anecdote about this. I used to work for an oil and gas company earlier in my career. Yeah. We were at this big company town hall and our CEO said our assets, and they meant like literally like the physical land assets that we yeah, own. Yeah. He said, our assets are our greatest asset. And I was like, <laughs> the first honest CEO in the world finally entered the room. I would pay you less if I could. I was like, I like you more right now because at least you're not lying to us. <laughs> you know, so, oh, no, I, I meant to say our people are our greatest asset. Well, I mean, with that said, I'll, I'll take like a network analytic twinge, you know, here. So like you have your human capital, but 
you also have the social capital that's built up in the organization as well. Like all these people interacting together, you got the historical knowledge, you know where like the bodies are buried, why things happen, cultures embedded in this as well. And that's really a reinforced uh, set of behaviors within your group to get shit done. Yeah, That's what happens. And that's what people analytics can do for you eh, from this like small, like network analytics sort of lens. But unleash the power of the people to go tackle the business. When this is something that's relevant to executives and you want to, oh, yeah. and wh- why it's relevant is because the percentage of total company evaluations, like how much a company is worth, if you compared it from like 1970 to 2020, I believe in like the, the, like the 1970s and eighties, about 80% of a company's valuation was made up by their literal tangible assets. And now that's been flipped to only about 20% of a company's value is made up by their tangible assets. And about the last 80% is made up by its human and social capital that the firm has. And so I would say that people analytics actually is becoming table stakes for an organization because how much of their evaluation is made up from human capital. And I know there's a lot of prominent thinkers in this space yeah. that have come to that same conclusion. Do you think that's because like our, our world's become like more abstract or more like, I don't know, technology driven. There's a lot less of uh, physical sort of resources that are. Yeah. I would say that to. I have two reasons. I have like a positive reason and a cynical reason. <laughs> I'd love to hear both. Uh, my, my positive reason is, is kind of like what you're saying where, you know, think of like the the knowledge, like think of like knowledge workers. Yeah. The knowledge firm is much, much more common nowadays than it was in the past, right? And you can insert Facebook, any kind of knowledge. Meta. Yes, exactly. So that that's kind of the positive story. And whereas like manufacturing as a segment or farming as the segment of the, you know, GDP is a much lower than it used to be. And those are very asset heavy industries, right? The the cynical reason is actually because of things like index funds, you know, like an index fund is. Yeah, the and so everybody just of- you know plows their money into their 401k and those 401ks purchase a whole bunch of index funds and that artificially inflates stock prices and stock prices artificially being inflated increases company evaluations beyond what they actually mean and therefore it's just because people are plowing all their money into the stock market that people <laughs> like these companies actually have higher valuations than they used to have and that is exactly why HR was created <laughs> Put a bow on it. Yeah. No, that's the good answer, Scott. Good answer. Very, very well thought through. Well, I think, you know, what's interesting here is, is, is kind of why, like, you know, we talk about this all the time on the podcast. So like, how can people analytics be more, you know, forward looking? How can it be the future of HR? And, and I think it's really important that we know what are we up against? You know, what are we working towards, but what are we up against? And I think having these type of conversations can be clarifying in that regard. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Scott's got nothing. See, this is why Cole is the uh, HR hipster. All right. Hipster segment of the day is over. <laughs> this is why I'm, I'm the details guy, not the... Yeah. Why, why, why do we exist? Have you heard of this cool new underground band? We need... Yeah. We need uh... It's called Human Capital. <laughs> well, that's actually a pretty good band name. That's not a bad band name. You're right. Um, well, hey, w- one last pivot for the day. Um, and I, I don't know, if you're, if you're a recurring listener to the podcast, one of the things you've probably noticed is we're trying to start engaging our audience a little bit more. 
And so one of the ideas that we had for engaging the audience and you, you all let us know if you're game for this, you may be, you may not be, but reach out to us if you are, is we're going to call it a, a segment called stumping colon Scott. Oh goodness. And so what, what is stumping colon Scott? <laughs> if you have a, like a people analytics problem or it could just basically any problem that you're facing, as long as you're in a people analytics function and you think it's hard or unaddressable or you're really struggling with it, send it our way and maybe we'll cover it on the podcast and, and maybe you'll stump Colin Scott, right? But, or we can just kind of work our way through it. We, if you want us to name you, we can name you. If you want us to not name you, we won't name you. But I think this could be a fun thing for us to kind of engage the community and to kind of have more of a two-way conversation with our listeners rather than just us pontificating. Or what was the, the thing you mentioned earlier about coming up with opinion on the fly and then you have to defend <laughs> it to the that death. Yeah. Uh, and we will, we will put the ways to contact us in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with us, for instance, we have a uh, Twitter account that is uh, yeah. I think we have uh, one follower. That'd be me, my yeah. personal account. So, I mean, you could be, I don't know, directionally correct hater 42 and tell us we're too and terrible. Yeah. You could reach out to us on Twitter. You can find Scott or myself on LinkedIn, or we do have directionally correct pod pod at gmail.com is our email address. So it's all one word. So, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of a, that's a conversation with a Scott, you want to go get a beer and, uh, let's do it and have some barbecue before you head <laughs> out. When, when you heading back out to the Northwest, a uh, couple weeks, a couple, couple weeks. weeks, that's going to be exciting. we got some great guests coming up again, just to reiterate, uh, let us know if you're interested in being on, if you're up to the challenge of being on analyst hour and they can't uh, handle this. Yeah. They can't and, handle this. I, I, I don't know. Um, and, and many people to, on my team trying to go, go to, yeah. I mean, if many people on my team in the past would say, uh, I ask hard questions <laughs> of analysts. So, you know, you may, you may not be up to the challenge, who knows, but uh, we, we want to put the challenge out there <laughs> and then, uh, you know, try to stump Kohler Scott. We, we want to hear from you and, uh, let us know. Um, Scott, any, any final words before we wrap this thing up? No, good conversation today. Look forward to hearing from you. Well, as I said last time, but I, I think it's worth saying again, it's really good seeing you in person. Probably this will be the, at least the last time for a little while we get to record these in person. So I'm really glad you're here and uh, I'm glad we're doing this. It's been a lot of fun. Ditto. Awesome. Thanks, guys.